Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 will be reading verses 14 through 18. I had intended on covering that whole section this morning, but we're actually going to take it in two parts. So we won't get through your whole outline this morning. That'll just mean for those of you who are OCD, you have to come back next week to get the rest of your outline. You know, no freebies today. So Hebrews chapter 2, looking at verses 14 through 16 this morning, but we'll read the whole passage. Um, before doing that, though, I, I wanted to share with you some, some quotes I came across this week, which were an encouragement to me. Before knowing God, Jonathan Edwards had a fear of thunderstorms. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. He said, I used to be a person uncommonly terrified with thunder. And it used to strike me with terror when I saw a thunderstorm rising. And then after his conversion, he writes this, now on the contrary, now on the contrary, thunderstorms rejoice me. I felt that God at first at the first appearance of a thunderstorm and used to take the opportunity at such times to fix myself to view the clouds and see the lightnings play and hear the majestic and awful voice of God's thunder, which oftentimes was exceeding entertaining, leading me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. So the transitions from this fear of God as creator to it's still a fear, but it's a, a proper fear that would bring him into reverence and worship to acknowledge a, a loving God behind that creation. Charles Spurgeon says something very similar. He said, standing in a thunderstorm, watching as best you can the flashes of lightnings and listening to the thunder of Jehovah's voice, have you not often shrunk into yourself and said, great God, how terrible art thou not afraid but full of delight like a child who rejoices to see his father's wealth his father's wisdom his father's power happy and at home but feeling oh so little one of the themes in the book where I found these quotes, it's, it's Michael Reeves' Rejoice and Tremble. And one of the themes in that book, just about every chapter, he mentions that there's a fear of God that would cause uh, unbelievers to flee from him. There's a, a fear of him that, that can be seen in, in creation that would cause them to flee from God, to want to hide because they know that they're, they're sinful. They know they're unworthy. But then there's also this fear of God that causes believers to fall before him in worship. That would cause us to experience reverence and awe so that we would even tremble in rejoicing. Scripture uses the exact same word for both. But the reaction makes all the difference. Either way, notice that fear is a controlling emotion. And we're compelled to react according to some deeply held concern. And so if the original audience 
that Hebrews was written to feared some temporal persecution for their faith, which seems likely. It seems that they were in a setting where persecution was happening and beginning to escalate around them. And they feared that to the degree that they sought to alleviate that pressure. Right? They, were, they were at least contemplating it because the author of Hebrews warns them repeatedly not to depart, not to, to leave the, the, the church right? and to return to the synagogue. Remember, these are, are Jewish Christians, probably in Rome, or something, a setting similar to that at the very least. But they had this fear of a temporal persecution for their faith. If that's the case, then we could also say very likely they feared eternal consequences to an even greater degree. Right? And if they were tempted to return to a Jewish synagogue for relief of their temporal fears, did they understand that that meant forfeiting everything Christ had accomplished? That they were turning away from Christ to do so? In other words, they would be choosing to alleviate a lesser fear by elevating a greater fear. He's, he's basically saying it's illogical for you to do this. And Michael Reeves notes that when your culture is hedonistic, your religion therapeutic, and your goal a feeling of personal well-being, fear will be the ever-present headache. And that's the relevance for us today. Right? No matter what their situation was then, we do experience fear today. Our, our culture is, has not learned how to overcome fear. An <laughs> uh, entire industry is built on it. When your culture is hedonistic, your religion therapeutic, and your goal a feeling of personal well-being, fear will be the ever-present headache. And so in our fallen nature, we fear all sorts of things, but the primary fear that comes up in, when, you, when you start looking into it, the primary fear is this fear of dying, fear of death, the consequences of death, what happens afterwards, the afterlife. Well, what we'll find in this passage is that the antidote to the fear of death is to meditate upon the death of death. We'll explain that as we make our way through it. Let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this important message that was given to a particular people, but certainly has us in mind as well, so that we can grow and learn from it. Because we find ourselves in similar situations. We find ourselves tempted by the snares of this world, by the temptations of the devil. Tempted even to, to flee, to think that we can find relief by not coming to church or not entering into worship with you. Because we're filled with guilt or shame. Lord, help us to understand the gospel this morning. Help us to understand how you respond to that fear. Lord, give us eyes to see the, the truth of this passage. Give us ears to hear it. Soften our hearts that we would respond in obedience. That you might be glorified and that everyone here might be edified and built up, equipped for the work that you've called them to. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. 
Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. This is God's holy word. So the first point in your outline, and this is the only point I'll give you today, is that we have been delivered from the wages of sin. Verses 14 through 16, delivered from the wages of sin. And the point that that is made very clear here, right from the bat, verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus became man. He partook, he took upon himself flesh and blood so that he might partake in the same things that united all of humanity. At the same things that we all experience, he might experience. And so flesh and blood implies more than just a a physical body. It entails all that it means to be human. He had a, a soul, a spirit like every other human. He was made like his brothers, verse 17 says, in every respect. And yet he was without sin, according to chapter 4, 15. So the only way Jesus could destroy death, which is the wages of sin, was by becoming fully human and then experiencing a real death. He didn't seem to be human. He was human. He didn't appear to die. He actually died and was buried. He was truly human, and then he genuinely died upon the cross. So Jesus became human, not because he had to, but it tells us the reason. It says that, the word that is is a purpose word, it's hina in the Greek. It indicates uh, in order that, or in order to. So he became human, he partook of the same, same things in order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus was born to die. That's what that verse is telling us, that he was born in order to destroy death through his own death. Dalich points out that the word translated destroy there implies not only a a passive endurance and suffering, but at the same time an active fight and struggle. The death by which death was overcome was a mortal combat with him that had the power of death. With life and death for its issues, a decisive termination of the war declared against Satan at the Lord's first entrance into the world. So this was the war that was declared as Jesus entered into the world and it, would, it terminated at the cross. That's where, he, where, where Jesus defeated 
death. So the crucifixion of Jesus ended the war that began at his birth. And though his own and through his own death, he, he finally defeats the devil. But before moving on, notice that, that it recognizes a significant power here that's attributed to the devil. He's acknowledged to possess the power of death. The one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So the emphasis here is upon the superior power of Christ who defeats the devil in destroying him, right? But the, but the devil's power here is acknowledged to be superior to humans. So in what sense does the devil have the power of death? The devil doesn't have absolute power over the lives of men. That, that is clear, right? There are plenty of passages that point to the devil's ultimate subservience of God. You can just read Job 1 for one example. Deuteronomy 32, 1 Samuel chapter 2, Psalm 68, 20. We won't turn there, but the, the devil doesn't have absolute power, but he did instigate the fall, which brought sin and death into the world, and therefore the estate of sin and misery was then passed on from Adam to all mankind, descending from him by ordinary generation. That's how our shorter catechism, question 16, puts it so that we experience the effects of the fall because of they've been passed on to us, that a state of sin and misery. We also know that the devil prowls about like a roaring lion. Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, 8. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour and destroy, destroy anyone he can with a, a faith-shattering temptation. Lastly, we can say that the devil constantly seeks to accuse believers of their guilt. We have a picture of this in Revelation 12, where the, the Satan is accusing the brothers, it says, day and night before God. He's, he's wanting to, to call upon God to bring judgment upon those who have broken his law, that they deserve death. And so in light of this, it's no wonder that humanity suffers this enslaving fear of death that the author points to. The one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through, or so, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I, I, I grew up, I can distinctly remember nights in my childhood when I cried myself to sleep filled with just terror about death just i used to i used to um i used to console myself by thinking i was still young i i wasn't very old right so so and so was going to die sooner than me because they're older than me and and like that was the only consolation i could have and then I, i'd be afraid because i knew other people were going to die sooner and and then i would think about that and that would just come compound my fear. I wondered if it was something that I was simply going to have to deal with throughout my life. If I, had, if I had Google back then, the internet, I would have just looked it up and probably come across some article explaining death anxiety. And I read this article this week. It says, death scares us all. 
It's likely that the people who say otherwise are lying. Death anxiety is real, religious, spiritual, or otherwise. We've all got questions about the big unknown and what happens after we die. That's part of life. If fear of death is normal, however, being crippled or paralyzed by that fear or having anxiety is not necessarily normal nor a good thing. So in other words, and you keep reading along, this article says we should expect to fear death and experience anxious thoughts about the afterlife, but hopefully that fear doesn't prevent you from living your life. So the authors are quite confident, in fact, that it's ultimately, there's, there's no way to eliminate the fear of death entirely. And there's certainly some, some truth to this, right? Every human has this knowledge written on their hearts and then witnessed by their conscience. Romans 2, 14 to 15 says it's a, a, there's a binding law that's oftentimes at odds with conflicting thoughts. So no matter how much they try to suppress this truth, they will continually come up against the accusations of the devil. But let me be clear, the notion that we need to learn to manage this lifelong fear is at odds with what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Jesus' death on the cross actually delivers people from their enslavement to the fear of death. It frees them to see death differently. And so the suggestion that we'll not ultimately overcome this fear is also at odds with my own experience. They can call me a liar, as they do in the article, but I no longer go to sleep with those anxious thoughts about death. And the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism provides us with a tremendously helpful meditation. So what is thy only comfort in life and in death? Notice, in, in, what is thy only comfort in life and in death? If you're anxious about death, turn to this question. The answer is that I with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. And hear this, and redeemed me me from all the power of the devil. We've just explained that this is not a light power that he holds. But what gives us that deliverance from that power is redemption. It's the blood of Christ, the precious blood that is fully satisfied for all my sins so that the accusations that the devil throws against us, they don't stick. We've been redeemed from all the power of the devil and so preserves me, this truth preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Some of you know that all too well. <laughs> He's lost a lot of hairs. Not a one of them, though, fell without God's sovereign knowledge and will. He goes on, yea, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. So believe your, believers, place your trust in these gospel truths. Memorize it. It's a faithful summary of Christian doctrine. And may the Holy Spirit grant you the assurance and comfort that only comes from him. Do you rest in that reality? 
Do you rest in the comfort that the gospel provides? Or are you filled with anxious thoughts about tomorrow? When you're faced with fearful temptations on every side, do you cling to the promise that Christ has delivered you from the power of death? And if he's delivered you from the power of death, then anything smaller than that, anything lesser than that, is completely sovereign over as well. He can deliver you from that too. So it's only through our union with Christ that anyone can overcome the devil's death threats and repeated temptations. And something else that I, I learned from Michael Reeves' book was, was the suffering that John Owen endured. It says that Owen was a man painfully familiar with heartbreak. In the second half of his life, not only was he hampered in ministry and harassed by the government, he also had to witness the burial of all 11 of his children, as well as his wife, Mary. Yet after the death of the first 10 children, he wrote these words, a due contemplation of the glory of, of Christ will restore and compose the mind it will lift the minds and hearts of believers above all the troubles of this life and is the sovereign antidote that will expel all the poison that is in them, which otherwise might perplex and enslave their souls. See that language there of, of enslavement again. How the trials and troubles that we experience in this life can enslave us with fear. What makes Christ so glorious then is uh, to the believer is that he took upon himself the penalty that, that we deserved. And that's, that's what the author of Hebrews is focused on. It's, it's upon his death. And he took upon himself our shame and our guilt. And he gave us his righteousness. And this great exchange is what transforms our outlook upon everything, including the fear of death. Jesus was able to deliver his children from enslavement to the fear of death by himself dying upon the cross. This is one of the passages that John Owen uh, refers to often. It's one of his favorite texts from which he makes the argument for limited or effectual atonement, as it's been called. And it seems to be where he got the inspiration for the title of his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. It's a classic work on atonement. And so regarding verse 14, let me read verse 14 again. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Owens writes this, it was the children that he considered, the children whom the Lord gave him. According to verse 13, look back at verse 13. Behold, I and the children God has given me. So we'll reflect upon that some more. But their participation, Owen writes, their participation in flesh and blood moved him, the son moved him to partake of the same, not because all the world or all the posterity of Adam, but because the children were in that condition for their sakes, he sanctified himself. So this deliverance does not belong to all those who bear the image of God, irrespective of their, of their relationship with God. These are the children who were given to him by the Father, according to verse 13. 
You can compare this same language with John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. John 17, there's several verses I want, I want you to just to see. John 17, verse 2, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now he's speaking of himself here. This is Jesus praying in the third person about the Son. Right? Father, this hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. We get verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9. I am praying for them. Now notice this. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So this is the work that he does and accomplishes for his children, for those who have been united and adopted into the family of God, right? He didn't, he didn't pray this prayer for everyone indiscriminately. But for those the Father had given him, namely the elect, as it says in Romans 8.33. So Jesus specifically delivered, or as he says in Hebrews 2.16, he helped those who were of the offspring of Abraham. And that's done by faith. Right, so connecting this argument then, he closed, going back to Hebrews 2 verse 16, he connects it back to his larger argument. Remember what he's been talking about. He's been comparing Christ to the angels. He's saying Jesus is superior to the angels. In verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And so he's pointing out here that the deliverance Jesus accomplished didn't provide any help to the angels. They weren't the ones enslaved to the fear of death like humanity. But for humans who were subject to lifelong slavery, our only hope is to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He alone is able to deliver us from the fear of death. He alone satisfied the righteous demands of the law. He alone endured the wrath of God against sin on behalf of those he came to save. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we'll come back to this idea of propitiation that's referenced there in verse 17. We'll look at that next week. But we can meditate upon the gospel this morning and appreciate the deliverance that we enjoy. And this song of response that we'll sing has this line in it, Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree, in the stead of ruined sinners, hangs the lamb in victory. So let us rejoice in that truth even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that, Lord, you give us such a comforting gospel. 
that it's, it's not just giving us hope for a future, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. But in, in, in and th- through this worship service, in and through your church, as, as your spirit is at work in our lives, it's as if heaven is, is brought to us now, that we begin to taste and to see that you're good and that your gospel is our hope and that it begins to transform the way we view everything. All the trials that we face, Lord, that, that we, can, we can find comfort in what Christ has done for us. Lord, that, may that be a, a, our guide. May that be our our refrain that we would continue to go back to that atoning work of Christ on our behalf. Lord, may you be glorified and lifted high as it was out of your love that you sent your son. You did not withhold him from us. And because of that, we know that you won't withhold any good thing for us. And we want to give you gratitude. And we want to respond now with hearts that are filled with the joy of our salvation, relishing in this joy, relishing in the, the gospel. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing this hymn of response, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. You'll find it in your song insert.